All right, if you want to grab a seat. Happy Daylight Savings. I hope that... Uh, I hope that you all enjoyed your extra hour of sleep. Those of you with uh, young children, I hope you enjoyed 5 a.m. breakfast. (laughs) My understanding is that that's how that works. Um, Just a a reminder, this this week and next week are the last two times that we'll meet for this service at 10 because it's moving to 945. Um, First service is going to 8, 945 for second service, 1130 still for third. That's on November 17th. If that's news to you, surprise. Um, If you're visiting with us and you want to come back on November 17th, come back at 945 uh, or 8 o'clock or 1130. Uh, We're looking forward to that. We're excited about it. The parking lot was probably a little chaotic out there today because I went long, but we won't have to worry about that anymore, which will be fantastic. So um, let's pray, and then we'll jump into Hebrews chapter 3. God, thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, for the chance for us to be together and just to declare the praise of the fact that uh, when you called our name, Lord, we, we came running out of the grave. We are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. We've been brought from death to life. And that for those who are saved by you, there's no going back. That the new has come and the old is completely gone. Lord, we praise you for that. God, I pray that we would live in that reality, that it wouldn't just be something that we kind of think about or that sounds good on the pages of Scripture, but that that new creation, that new life would be something that we live out of every single day. Not because we think we've got to earn something, but because we've been given that thanks to the work of Christ. God, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would empower your word. Send it out, Lord, from this place. Take it. Place it upon our hearts, God, by your Holy Spirit, would you use it to do transforming work inside each of us individually, but inside of us as a community of believers. God, would you transform us truly into a family, united by the blood of Jesus Christ, existing alongside one another to glorify you and to encourage and edify and build up one another. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read uh, Hebrews 3, 12 to 15. That's where we're going to be this morning. It says this, Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceit. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it is written, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. If you were here last week, we looked at Hebrews 3, starting in verse 7, and we went all the way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 19, and we did kind of the heavy lifting of the theological side of what is the author of Hebrews and the Holy Spirit communicating through this passage. I want to recap that so that if you were here, you get a refresher and we can kind of hit the ground running, and if you weren't here, so you can get the gist of what we saw last week, because we need that in order to understand what we're going to see this week. This week, our goal is to be very practical with what are the practical kind of implications and commands that are given in verses 12 to 15, but we need to do that inside of the theological truths of the larger passage. So this is what we saw last week. The main point of the passage is summed up by verse 19. 
So we see that they, that's the Israelites, were unable to enter, and that's the promised land, because of unbelief. That's the main point of the passage, that unbelief kept the Israelites out of God's rest. That is what Hebrews 3, 7 to 19 is trying to communicate. Psalm 95 is where the quotation comes from in verses 7 to 11, but also in verse 15. It sets the context here. Verse 19 sums up the whole passage, and belief is what matters. Entering the promised land or not entering the promised land for the Israelite people, that first generation hinged on belief. Their unbelief that the Lord would be able to give them that land is the reason for which they perished in the wilderness. That is what's happening in terms of reminding us of something in this passage. And there's an encouragement in the middle of that. The encouragement is that we would hold firm. Hold firmly until the end the belief that we professed at the beginning. Hang on. If you just keep believing, you can not only be assured of your faith, but also be assured that you're a participant in Christ, verse 14, and be assured that you will enter the eternal rest of God at the end of your life. Don't stop believing. Hold firm. Verse 14 is the grounding verse of this whole section. So if you want to look at that, this is where we get this encouragement to to hang on, to hold on to your faith. There are two clauses in verse 14, a conditional one, that comes first. You know it's conditional because of the word if. For we have become participants in Christ if. And then there's a grounding clause, the second part that tells us how is it that the conditional thing happens. Well, we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. First clause there is past tense. We'll know that we have become in the past participants with Christ if in the future we hold firmly to our belief. That is the passage there, the the verse. We can be absolutely certain that we became participants in Christ, that we were saved in the past if we hold firm in the future. That is the meaning there of verse 14, that your belief tomorrow is the evidence of your belief today. This all comes in the context of a warning, but it's like an encouraging warning. It's not a doomsday kind of thing. You're not being slapped upside the head with this. The author of Hebrews wanted to give a pastoral encouragement to this church that's undergoing persecution, that is oppressed, where the struggle to just keep on believing is a very real and tangible thing for them every single day. And the, cur- or the encouragement is this. You can know with absolute certainty that you are saved and that you are going to spend eternity in God's rest and in heaven if you believe. If you believe today, there's absolutely no reason to question whether or not you're saved. If you believe that you need a Savior because of your sin and that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death so that He could be the sufficient Savior for your sin, you believe that today, there is no reason to question whether or not you are saved. And furthermore, that should create bold faith. That confident assurance creates bold faith. What did this church need in the face of oppression? What did this church need in the face of being told that if they would just recant their faith, all the persecution would end? They needed confident assurance that would create bold faith to stand in the face of that. That's that's still a pertinent encouragement for the church today. There's no reason to question your salvation if you believe today, and if you believe today, then eternity with God is what awaits you in the future, and you can be bold in your faith. Nothing can ultimately or eternally 
impact you. There's the larger context. What kept the Israelites out of their promised land and God's rest was unbelief and unbelief only. We are to hold firm to our belief until the very, very end. Our belief tomorrow is evidence of our belief today and our belief yesterday. And a confident assurance of our faith creates boldness in our faith. Today, we're just going to look at the practicals that come in verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. Here's the main point. Enduring faith is a group project. Enduring faith is a group project. Think back to middle school, high school, college, the thought of a group project for most of us created dread. Now, it could have created dread on one of two sides. Side number one, you associated group projects with I'm going to do all the work and somebody's going to do nothing and they're going to get the same grade. Side number two, you thought to yourself, I'm going to do nothing. I hope the person who does work gets us a good grade. Right? Those were the two options when it was group project time. But this idea of enduring together is something that is supposed to give the church great encouragement. You're not trying to hold firm to the end by yourself. There are others involved in this process. God is involved. We're going to see that. We have a responsibility. And then the church is involved. That is where we're headed. But we need to start someplace else. We need to start with what verse 14 means when it says that we've become participants in Christ. That is an important phrase. You are a participant in Christ if you have been saved by the grace of God through faith in his work on the cross. Believe. That's question number one for everybody here this morning. Do you or do you not believe in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross? If you do, you're a participant in him. The cultural reality in America, what pervades our culture is this idea of individualism. We don't really hang out in driveways in America. We hang out on back patios, and we'd prefer it if our back patio had an eight-foot privacy fence so no one can see us hang out back there. It's easier to connect with someone on the other side of the world right now than it's ever been before. You can do it by just clicking an app, but we would really prefer that that connection happen via the app and not actually in person. And then when we do get together in person, we've got to overcome what is basic human nature to hide really who we are from those that we're connecting with. To resist being vulnerable, to resist actually sharing what it is that we might be struggling with or wrestling with or dealing with at any given moment. Add into that the fact that in America, we've been trained to celebrate the rugged individual who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps with no help from no one else and in spite of all the haters, and that that is the thing that we're supposed to celebrate. That to be a completely independent individual is somehow the peak of what it means to be a fully developed human. You cannot find that anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere. Scripture does not affirm the idea that what it is to have like fully arrived as a human being is to be completely autonomous and independent. That's an American cultural thing, not a biblical thing. The Bible makes it very clear. There is no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. It does not exist. In America, you'll hear people say, oh, I'm a Christian, but I don't really like the church. I'm a Christian, but I don't really do organized religion. I'm a Christian, 
but I just listen to sermons online or something like that. That's not, that's not a biblical thing. The biblical picture of the church repeatedly is that it is a group organization. We've been brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews says that we are a household built together by the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians says that we are a body built together by the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter says that we're a royal priesthood called together by the blood of Jesus Christ. Those who are saved are participants in Jesus. What's that mean? If you were to read through the New Testament, you would see the following phrases pop up, not just once, but repeatedly. That we died in Christ. We were raised in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. We are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. We will reign with Christ. We are participants in the mission of Christ. We're in Him. That's one of the great mysteries of the gospel is that when you went from old creation to new creation, you didn't just go from old independent you to new independent you. You went from old, I think I can do this all on my own you, to you united with Jesus. You in Christ. And you got all these brothers and sisters who are also in Christ. So not only is your individualism squashed by the fact that you're now united to Jesus, it's also squashed by the fact that you're united to the church. The blood of Jesus on the cross has brought you into all of that. You're a participant thanks to Jesus' work on your behalf, not an inactive passenger on the train to heaven. Right now, sisters and brothers, you are participants with Christ. And that means this. I mean, this could require a mountain of sermons or pages in a book to spell out. But what Jesus Christ is doing, He is doing in you. The things that you read the Gospels and you see Jesus Christ doing, you're now in Him and He's doing those things through you. And He's doing those things through His church. That's what it is to be a participant in Christ. And sometimes... We need a little bit of help in order to just continue on in that. Last week was don't stop believing. This week is I get by with a little help from my friends. Yeah, I'm not singing every week. That's the end of that. This is a group project. Enduring faith is a group project. God has a role, I have a role, or we have a role, and then the church has a role. Let's look at God first. Verse 15. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What does God do? God speaks. That's his role. What is God's role in our enduring faith? Well, God continues to speak. The immediate context here in Psalm 95 is that God spoke to his people through Moses the mediator. That's Hebrews 3 as one big picture. And the the Israelite people chose not to believe. They hardened their hearts. They did not listen. They rebelled out in the wilderness, and therefore that is where they perished. They had direct word from God of what it was that he was going to do on their behalf, and they chose not to believe. 
And so the author of Hebrews uses that image to say, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts because God speaks. That's his role in the initiation, the preservation, and the consummation of our faith. He calls us into faith. He speaks to assure us of our faith, and one day he will call us into glory. There's no shortage of verbiage of God speaking that's available to us. 66 books of it right here about who he is, who we are, what that means, how we come into relationship with him. When we're in relationship with him, what's it look like to walk in that relationship? What are we commanded to do? What is Jesus doing that ought to be happening inside of us as we participate with him? We're not short on verbiage from a God who speaks. What does that speaking look like? What is it? Well, the Father is authoritative. He's revealed himself in his word. He's told us who he is, what it means to live in relationship with him. There's no reason for a follower of Jesus to wonder what it is that God wants from his children, ever. He's told us. He's used human language to tell us. Think about that. Infinite God of the universe, sovereign and eternal, has chosen to confine himself to human language in order to give us all that we need to know him. That's phenomenal. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need special training. It's right here for us, spelled out in glorious clarity. And in the case of the Father, we listen by reading. You might think to yourself, I've never heard the voice of God. This says, today, if you hear his voice, I've never heard the voice of God. I would tell you, go home after this service, open up your Bible, and there it is. You don't need a booming voice from heaven. You don't need something mystical or magical. You've got it. All of us, access to it, right in front of us. You can hear his voice by opening up your Bible. The Father's authoritative. Jesus the Son, attests to this. He fulfilled every bit of this by his life. As if telling us wasn't enough, the Son came along and he put this revelation into human flesh right before our eyes. You aren't sure what it means to love one another? Look at Jesus. He'll show you. You're not sure what it means to endure or bear patiently with one another? Look at Jesus. He'll show you by his life. You're not sure what it is to serve one another? Look at Jesus. He attests to that, displays it for us. In the case of Jesus, we listen by looking. Hebrews 3.1, consider Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is active. So the Father's authoritative, the Son attests, the Holy Spirit is active. He speaks to us. Today, in the life of a believer, the Holy Spirit speaks. And so in that case, we listen by discerning. That's a skill that we develop. We learn how to hear from the voice of the Lord, from the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Practically, how do we do this? How do we hear the voice of the Lord? Number one, read scripture. There's no substitute for that. That's where we hear the voice of the Father. That's where we see the life of Jesus. That's where we go to discern the promptings of the Spirit. Read Scripture. There is a direct correlation. Every study of Christian growth and um, 
like Christian living that's ever been done, there's a direct correlation between the maturity of a believer and the frequency with which they engage in God's word. Every study that's ever been done, there is a direct correlation between the perseverance of a believer's faith and the interaction they have with the word of God. Read scripture. You want to hear the voice of the Lord. I cannot give you a stronger encouragement than to open your Bible and read it. That is the voice of God. It doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. It doesn't need to be more mysterious than that. Open it and read it. And you say to yourself, Tim, sometimes I don't understand what I'm reading. Then ask someone. Open it. Read it. Go to someone who might know and have a conversation about Scripture to where you can hear and understand the voice of the Lord. Number two, put life to Scripture by considering Jesus. Oftentimes, our heart needs to see what it is that our eyes read. That's what it is to consider Jesus. You're reading along in a passage of Scripture, and you come across, whether it be a command or you come across kind of an imperative in Scripture, and you think to yourself, what does that mean? Our knee-jerk reaction should be, let me think about it in the life of Jesus. What did it look like? How did he fulfill it on the cross? How did Jesus say this thing? How did he live out this thing? We consider Jesus, and it puts life to what it is that we're reading in Scripture. If we're in the Old Testament, how did Jesus fulfill that thing? Number three, learn to discern the Holy Spirit's voice. Journaling can be hugely helpful in this. Oftentimes, I'll just go from personal experience. I can do this when I come to Scripture. I read something uh, out of God's word. I think about that in the life of Jesus. And there's something inside of me, that's the Holy Spirit, that illuminates for me that what I'm reading and then what I'm seeing from the life of Jesus does not really match up with what is being lived out inside of me. And it's uncomfortable, like immediately. Most of us know this feeling. And then I think to myself, I should make a to-do list for later today. I should just move on now because I'm uncomfortable. That's the Holy, that is the Holy Spirit speaking, taking the truth of God's word and pressing it into my own life. Or I'll have times where I do this. I read something out of scripture and I think to myself, you know who needs that? And I think of someone else and there's the Holy Spirit saying, no, 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 you know who needs that is you. I'm not, we're not comfortable enough actually sitting in that and letting the Holy Spirit speak, so we rush on, and then we say, I don't know how to hear the Holy Spirit. Yes, you do. You just don't like to listen to the Holy Spirit. And so journaling can be hugely helpful. Here's why. It forces you to slow down enough to actually take what's happening in your heart, in your mind, as you're reading Scripture, and write it down on paper, and now there it is in front of your eyeballs, and we can't ignore it. You get a few weeks down the road or a few months down the road and you go back in that journal and you're reading and there it is in front of you again. Journal. Another great way to learn to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit is in conversation with other believers. The Lord is stirring something inside of you. You're feeling prompted in a certain direction. Have a conversation about that with other believers. Do they affirm it? Or do they say, hey, that's, that's not in line with scripture. 
at which point you can be absolutely certain that that's not the Holy Spirit speaking, that is your flesh. Have conversations with other believers. Always go back to his word. Last, pray scripture. Pray it. You sit down to read the Bible, something jumps out at you, turn it into a prayer. That could be a praise for who God is and how he's shown that or displayed that in your life. It could be a prayer that God would display himself to you in that way in your life because your circumstances could really use God's comfort, God's presence, God's healing, whatever the case might be. It could be a prayer for the Holy Spirit to bring to life inside of you a command or imperative that you're reading. Journal it. Write it down. Turn it into a prayer. Invite the Holy Spirit to speak into that. Reflect on Jesus. God speaks. We can be confident of that. That's his role. But what are we to do with the fact that God speaks? Well, we're not just supposed to listen to it. We're supposed to do something. Verse 12, watch out, brothers and sisters, so there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. God speaks, I watch out. That's my role. This isn't a group project where everyone else does all the work and then we skate by with whatever grade is given. We're told to do something. We're supposed to pay attention or take heed. It's a similar encouragement to what we got in Hebrews 2 verse 1. Pay attention so you don't drift away. The word here is different than there though. It literally means to see, to look around, to look at, look upon, look intently, or even to recover your sight. And what are we supposed to look at? Watch out brothers and sisters, so there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. We're supposed to look out for our own heart. Okay? Practically speaking, what does that mean? What do I do with that? Number one, we could all stand to grow in our self-awareness. No matter where you are in that process, some might be further down the road than others, We could all use that. This is John Calvin. Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, all true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. First, the knowledge of God, and also the knowledge of ourselves. Let me be clear. We must first know God. It does us no good to be really in tune with who we are and yet completely out of touch with who God is. That is not beneficial to us. We have to learn to hear God speak, number one, and then be aware enough to see exactly how God's word intersects in our own lives. Self-awareness. This is the opposite of you're seated, you know, in church somewhere, you hear a sermon, and the first thing you want to do is nudge your spouse or your child like, hey, are you listening? No. How does this intersect in my life? What's the Holy Spirit saying about the truth of this in my own life? Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. The verses before that, if you want to jot this down, Proverbs 4.20, and 22, are all about first listening to the voice of the Lord, hearing His commands, applying them to your life, then guarding your heart. That's the order. Hear God speak see who he is, be self-aware. How does that impact me? That requires that we, number two, make time for reflection. It takes time to be self-aware. You've got to create the space necessary to make it happen. 
We need to make time to hear God speak. We also need to make time and space to reflect on what it is that he said and how that intersects with our own life. Number three, vocalize your unbelief. Mark chapter nine, there's an interaction between Jesus and uh, this particular man who in the middle of this interaction cries out, I believe, help me with my unbelief. What in the world is he saying there? I, I believe. I pray every person in here can make that declaration. I believe in who Jesus Christ is. But then all of us also at various times can make the second declaration. Help me with my unbelief. When sin happens in our lives, ultimately it's evidence of unbelief. Not unbelief in a salvific sense, but unbelief in the fact that God could provide for us better the thing that we thought that our sin could give us. When we sin, we need to be willing to ask ourselves, what am I believing that this thing could provide for me that I don't think or I don't believe God or Jesus actually could? You lie at work to a teacher. Force yourself to ask the question. What is it that I thought this lie would provide for me that I disbelieve Jesus could provide for me better? Let's use the example of school. You lie on some piece of homework. Ultimately, why? Increase your grade. You cheated. You did whatever. You got caught. The teacher said, did you do this? You look her right in the eye and you say, nope. What's going on there? Is it that you believe that you need the good grade for the sake of your own like, identity and self-worth and you don't believe that you could find that in Jesus whether you got a B, an A, or a D? What is it? See them side by side. Actually write it down. Vocalize your unbelief. Here's what happened. Here's what I disbelieved. Here's how Jesus makes that greater. There's no better way to see just how trivial our sin is than to stack it up right next to the grandness of Jesus and force ourselves to look at it. And say, this is what I thought could provide for me better than Christ, who's given me new life, who's brought me into this great salvation, who's promised me all of these various things. See them side by side. That whole process, growing in self-awareness, making time for reflection, vocalizing your unbelief, that might need the guided help of a counselor or a pastor. I cannot encourage you enough to take advantage of that. The pastors on our staff would love to meet and to talk about those things. A counselor who's trained in helping you grow in your own self-awareness would love to undergo that process with you. Our job is to watch out and now the church, verse 13. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. The church is populated by your blood-bought brothers and sisters. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross purchased for you this family of believers. They are the bricks that make up the house alongside you. They are the priests that serve in worshiping the Lord with you. They are the parts necessary to make this body functional. And in this passage, 
those parts, that body is given a specific role and it's to help keep each other going. Encourage each other daily. The range of that word encourage is huge. It's not just to be a cheerleader for, although that is part of what it is to encourage someone. But it can also mean to urge someone, to appeal to someone, to comfort them, to console them, to request of them, to implore them, to entreat or exhort them, to strongly counsel someone, to advocate for someone, to challenge someone. Encouragement is the umbrella under which all of those fall. So, practically speaking, how do we offer that kind of encouragement to one another? Number one, think beyond church programs. Let me just try to paint the picture of what would maybe be like the busiest person in our congregation. You come on Sundays both to worship and to serve. You're in a small group. You have a child in Truth Seekers, and you've got another child in youth ministry and student ministry. That would mean that someone in your family is having interaction with this congregation on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night for your small group, and Tuesday night at Truth Seekers. Does that sound like daily? That sounds like four out of seven, three out of seven. That sounds like encourage one another when the church calendar demands that I be in the presence of these people. That's not how it's supposed to work. Remember, this is a church under intense pressure, struggling to hold firm, tossed about by the general difficulty of life in a fallen world and the specific challenge of their cultural setting of persecution. Now, our setting today is different, but our resources are the same. Hebrews 3.1, consider Jesus. That should always be our first move. And then circle the wagons with one another. Provide encouragement, support, comfort, care, confrontation when necessary for our brothers and sisters. We need to stop thinking about the church as an organization that provides us goods and services and start thinking about the church biblically as this living organism that is bought by the blood of Jesus Christ in order to bring God glory and our brothers and sisters encouragement. Get outside of programs. Get outside of what does this church provide for me and encourage daily. Well, how do I do that? Make it a priority. Make it a priority. Look, this has never been easier in human history. You don't have to like write a letter, wait for the carrier pigeon to grab it and deliver it to whoever it needs to go to. You don't even have to pick up the phone and speak to someone with your voice. You can get your phone out, use your thumbs to tap out a little message and send it instantly to the woman at your ladies' Bible study table, to the other mom that you're in mom's with, to the men or the women in your small group, to the men at your legacy lab table. It is so easy for us to be encouragements to one another. We just need to make it a priority to open up our eyes to the reality that I'm not trying to be a lone wolf Christian, which means all these other people aren't either. And so I can reach out and provide an encouraging word. I can reach out and give comfort to someone. In a discipleship relationship, you can do that one-on-one with each other. Maybe you've got some life experiences that could be an encouragement to those who might find themselves in similar places. 
This actually has just recently happened within the life of our congregation. There were a couple of families that experienced sudden, tragic, unexpected loss. They processed through their own grief with that and then came to our pastoral team and said, we would love to lead grief share here. And so now they're using their own experiences with grief in order to help like 20 people, both inside and outside of our congregation, walk through their own grief. That's an encouragement to brothers and sisters to hold firm to their faith. Maybe you've experienced sudden job loss, prolonged illness, a child that's really strong-willed, or a child that's walked away from the faith, and as a parent, you're trying to figure out how to manage your way through that. Maybe you've experienced marital tension that's almost ripped you and your spouse apart, but you've made it to the other side. Think about the encouragement you could be to someone else. We've got to get outside of programs in order to do that, and we've got to make it a priority. If you have some of those life experiences, our pastoral staff would love to know about those and to know about your willingness to use those as an encouragement to others in our congregation. So when someone comes to us and says, I just lost my job yesterday, I showed up to work and found out I didn't have a job anymore and I don't know what to do, we could say, oh, here's Rick. Let me connect you with Rick. He had this experience a couple years ago. Send Kurt an email. Let him know that this is what you've seen the Lord be faithful through and you would be willing to use that in the life of someone else. And then when those pop up, we can connect and we can encourage one another. Last, number three, understand family. Here's what I mean by that. Understand your blood-bought family. If you're married and your spouse is a believer, Your spouse is not only your wife or your husband, they are also your brother or your sister in Christ. If you have children and your children are believers, think about the wonderful reality it is that your children are not only your sons and daughters, but also your brothers and sisters. That God, in the way it is that he has designed human family, has made it so that underneath your roof is your blood-bought church family, which means sometimes you sit down as mom or dad and you just need to deliver, I'm the authority figure and this is what I'm saying. But other times you sit down and you've got this wonderful privilege to say, as your brother in Christ, that you might have that opportunity with a spouse. You might have that opportunity with your biological brother and sister, to encourage one another daily, to be intentional with your conversations and provide that for each other. Family is biological, but it can also be theological and they can both exist inside your home. And that is a tremendous privilege. That's a place to encourage one another daily. Enduring faith is a group activity. I want to end with this video. This video is uh, of a man named Elliot Kipchoge who uh, about a month ago ran the first ever marathon in under two hours. He had 41 pacers that helped him throughout the task. They swapped in and out at intervals of about three miles at a time. What you're going to see on the screen here is the last 800 meters or so 
of that marathon. He's been running, Elliot Kipchoge has been running for like an hour and 57 minutes or so. He's wearing white. The announcers, I just want to give you a heads up, really love running. So they're very excited. <laughs> I realize that is a niche market. And so feel free to just ignore what's being said if you want. What I want you to watch are the pacers. They're in black. This last group has been running with Elid Kipchoge for the last five kilometers of this race, which is three miles. Some of them ran one chunk earlier. Some of them did not. But they were the seven that were fortunate enough to be on the course with him when he crossed the finish line. This is what it looked like. The pace car is gone. We've lost the laser. He's getting now. One it's now low. all down to Elliot and the pacemaker. The gloves are off. He's this getting is, quicker. He's racing right now. This is this is racing. Well, this is true racing. Shalane knows what this feels like through the streets of uh, Central Park in New York, whether it's in Berlin or London. But today is all about Vienna. Today is all about Elliot Kipchoge. We're down to the last couple of minutes to bring him home. Ed, some final thoughts from you. I'm overjoyed that particularly this man has got to do this. Uh, it's not just the barrier being broken, it's something that has existed in this person's head for so long and I'm, it's so gratifying to watch, watch him achieve that. He's almost there. He can see the finish line. That's the view from Elliot Kipchoge. You can see the finish line where we are looming into view. 157 and approaching 158. I think we can say with some certainty there now he that he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He's right going. There. He's telling him to move away. Come on, he says. Come on, this is it. Shalane, a final thought from you. This is incredible. Elliot's performance is such a gift to the world. His running is a gift to all of us. I feel so blessed to be here today. I feel like, I hope everyone can hear me smiling through this microphone right now. I cannot stop smiling. 500 meters to go. He has the Hauptalli to himself. He's All the pacemakers have let him go. As Ed said, he is sprinting into the history books here. They're cheering him on. 400 meters to go. Let's bring him home. This is history unfolding on the streets of Vienna this morning. It's a Saturday run like we've never seen before. Listen at the noise. The crowd getting right behind him. Goodness me, 300 metres to go. He can see the finish line here. Neil Armstrong we had on the moon in 1969. We had Roger Bannister, the four-minute mile 65 years ago. Edmund Hillary, the first man to climb Everest in 1953. We have one minute to go. Elliot Kipchoge is on his way here. It's not this, gonna humble, be a minute. this humble farmer who used to run two miles to school every day and back. He used to go to the nearest town on his bike to sell milk at the local market. And now, through hard work and discipline, he's pointing. Come on, he says. Elliot Kipchoge has the hand of history on his shoulder. He has less than 200 metres to go. Elliot Kipchoge, let's keep an eye on the clock. Into the final 20 seconds. Elliot Kipchoge. Whoa. On his shoulder. 140. Oh. 140. The unofficial oh, line. There's his wife. Elliot, Elliot Kipchoge storms into the history books in Vienna. 159.40. The unofficial time. The first man to run a marathon in under two hours. One final lung-busting stride for Kipchoge. One giant leap for human endeavor. And you know... The point is this. 
at some point, you're going to cross the finish line of faith. You will not have gotten there alone. It should never have been your goal to get there alone, nor should it ever have been a thought in your mind that someone else would get there alone. Those pacers were so excited to see Elliot Kipchoge cross the finish line of that in under two hours. As a church family, we should be so excited to see our brothers and sisters cross the finish line of faith, having held firm the confidence that they had until the very end as participants in Jesus. That's a joy that we get to do alongside one another. I pray that whenever that moment arrives for me and I stand there before Jesus in my moment of judgment where the blood of Christ is going to cover me and I'm going to be ushered into eternal rest, I pray that there is a church full of people back here on the ground celebrating like that. Encourage one another daily. That's what it is. Enduring faith is a group project. God speaks. We are to watch out. But the church is to encourage. We're going to take communion, but we're going to do this a little differently even than we do on a typical weekend. Um, We're going to sing this first song. And if you're someone who has volunteered to pass out communion, if you would come grab the trays and pass it out as we sing this first song together, which is just all about the grace of Jesus that has saved us. Just hold on to the two elements while we sing, and then I'll come back up and we'll take those together. Stand up. Let's worship.